It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni with Jeremy Kate, and on today's show, we welcome back Dr. Kim Eaton, Director of Franklin County's Reentry Services and Co-Chair of Franklin Together, a coalition that works to ensure ex-offenders can come home and stay home. And a little later on in the show, we'll be hearing from Josh Wurgo, who also worked with Franklin Together, representing returning citizens. He'll tell us about his own story of reentry. But first, Kim, this is a big month for you. Tell us what you have going on. April is National Reentry Month, and we have a month of events planned to bring the cause of reentry to the forefront for the county. Maybe we should take a minute and talk about reentry and what you are addressing. Franklin Together, what we do is look at reentry issues and all the barriers that are in place for people who are returning from either jail or prison. Some of the facts that we want to make sure that the public understands is that the United States incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. Mm -hmm. And in fact, as a percentage basis, as a percentage, Mm -hmm. we constitute 5% of the world's population. And yet we incarcerate 25% of the people who are incarcerated in the world. Mm -hmm. So there's an imbalance there. And basically it started about 40 years ago started first with the Just Say No campaigns of the 1970s, um, where we began to incarcerate people more and more for drug crimes. Mm -hmm. And then in the 1990s, the three strikes rules came into effect, and people were given long prison sentences Mm -hmm. for things that today we would consider misdemeanors or might not incarcerate at all. Right. So here we have an explosion, actually, 625 percent explosion in the prison population over 40 years Mm -hmm. and today we'd like to see that decrease instead of continuing to increase because mass incarceration isn't good for anyone right and then you you work with local law enforcement as well is that correct correct so i'm in the jail and i work with Um, the jail treatment staff, and I also work with adult probation. Mm -hmm. I run two programs, one for people in the criminal justice system who have mental health issues, Mm -hmm. and another program which is grant-funded for people who don't have home plans and can't be released from the jail without one. What is a home plan? A home plan is somewhere that they can live that's approved by probation, Mm -hmm. um, considered to be a safe place for them to be. And if they don't have one, then they can't be released from jail. So often people are in jail past their minimum date um, because they just don't have anywhere to go. So this grant affords them the opportunity to go to a shelter while they find a permanent home plan. And then it also helps them with security deposits and rent so they can be placed into permanent housing. Mm-hmm. And are there, what are the qualifications to be a part of the program? I imagine you can't take on necessarily people with a violent past. What are the, what are the qualifications? The basic qualification is you have to be a Franklin County resident. Um, you have to be planning to stay here. We don't specifically rule out uh, certain crimes. We take that on a case-by-case pa- basis, and people do have to apply for the program. Okay. And are most of your clients, if that's the right word, uh, the majority of them drug offenders? The majority of people in the jail do have drug offenses. The number one offense in the Franklin County Jail is DUI, with mm-hmm. about a third of the jail population in for a DUI offense. Okay. Then drug-related crimes, either trafficking drugs, using drugs, many mm-hmm. violations for probation are because of drug use. Mm-hmm. And do they have to seek you out, or do you go into the jails and kind of talk to them? If someone applies for the program through the correctional treatment staff, then I go into the jail and talk to them about what issues mm-hmm. they have and what help they need. And does this expedite them getting released? Often it does. If they Uh don't have a home plan, they're going to sit until they do have one. Mm -hmm. So this helps them get out sooner rather than later. And some people would still be in jail a year later without the home plan that was afforded them by the grant. Mm -hmm. So what's going on in April? 
So in April, we're going to start out uh, at the beginning of the month, April 2nd, with a proclamation being signed by the county commissioners declaring April as Reentry Initiatives Month. And then later that day, we're going to have a press conference at the Coyle Library that outlines all of our events for the month. Okay, great. So those events are numerous, and I'd like to share them with you because many are still open for the public to attend. Okay, great. So on April 3rd, we're having a reentry summit at Rhodes Grove's uh, Conference Center. That event was registration only, and it is closed at this point. We are doing a reentry simulation there, and we're very pleased that Bob Thomas will be one of our speakers, our county commissioner, and also Rob Reed, who is assistant district attorney in Pennsylvania. He's coming down from Harrisburg to be our keynote speaker. Mm -hmm. And that reentry simulation, if I can stop you there, let's talk a little bit about that because I think, if correct me if I'm wrong, you're kind of trying to build empathy so it's, that regular people can understand what the hurdles are. And so can you give us just a little idea about what that reentry simulation is like? So the simulation is exactly meant for that purpose, for people to have a better understanding of what people go through. So we break it up into 15-minute segments, and each segment denotes one week out of a month. And in that week, you have to get everything done that you're required to do, such as going to work, going to meetings, going for appointments with mental health, with substance abuse, taking care of your children. And as you go through that process, we throw hurdles up for you that are real in real life. Okay. So you might go to check in for your substance abuse treatment and pull a card that says you had a positive drug test. And then we walk you through the steps of what that could mean for you. Right. So everyone's divided up into families. Um, and it's a pretty exciting time. I can't say it's a fun time. Most people are very stressed out by it. It's not meant to be a game. that's the desired result, though. <laughs> exactly. It's not meant to be a game. It's not meant to be fun. But it is meant for you to see how many things people have to do to get by and to not violate. And oftentimes, people will end up in jail. And in the case of drug use, and we know this from, you know, the work of our Drug Overdose Task Force in Franklin County, bringing to light the issues of opiate use, that people die. Yeah. And so it's important for us to understand the struggle so that we can then come up with solutions. And is there any truth to the idea that jail is a good place for drug addicts to, you know, get sober? Well, we do have protocols for people who go into jail who need to detox. No one wants jail to be our detox centers. Right. It just happens that they are by default, mm -hmm. the same way that they also are handling mental health uh, issues for people by default. Yeah. So what we want to do is make sure that people get the help they need, not help through punishment. Just doesn't work like that. It, but we do the best we can. Right. Is the system in any way adjusting? Because I don't think jail was ever designed, as we're talking about, to be a sober place or a place for mental health treatment. Is the system kind of having to adapt? We absolutely do. And in our jail, we have a treatment program that has been um, applauded throughout the state and, state and replicated because we're working with people who have an opiate addiction, sending them out for treatment and uh, medication so that when they're released from jail, they already have that in place and so that hopefully they're more successful in getting there. Right, they have a shot. They have a shot at it. Mm -hmm. That's what we want. We want to increase everyone's odds at doing better and give them the resources and mm -hmm. the contacts. What is the state of the opioid crisis here in Franklin County? I know that nationally we've, it's become a huge catastrophe. Where are we locally? Well, we have lower numbers than we had a couple years ago, but as we say, you know, one is too many. Yeah. And so we have to keep plugging away at what's out there, what can we do to get people treatment and mm -hmm. to recognize. And there's a huge push on let's get ahead of this and let's prevent it. So we know the medical community is doing better by just not giving out so many. Not yet, not prescribing it so yes, much. Right, absolutely. Because right. many people get addicted that way. Yeah, that is kind of the story you hear is that, you know, the 50-year-old, you know, non-drinker, non-smoker goes in for back pain and a year later they're strung out. 
Exactly. I've had clients like that and, and young kids, you know, they get hurt in a sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're given opiates. Some people, even with dental surgery, all of a sudden they're given massive amounts of opiates and mm-hmm. it's, it's a drug that you're quickly addicted to. Yeah, not good. All right, let's continue with the events. So after the summit, um, we do have open meetings for our task forces that are on our list, but we're also excited because the Salem United Brethren Church they have events every month, not just reentry month, co- called Comfort Kitchen, and that's on Friday nights twice a month. Mm-hmm. And that's open to anyone who wants to come and have a meal and, and share fellowship with others. And we're going to be there this month so that we can talk to people, see if they have any needs, talk about reentry issues there. So we're thankful that they've opened their doors yeah, for us that's to great. be Do they of offer that. mentoring services or is it just kind of a come in and have it's a meal? Just, and It's a place just to come in and mm-hmm. just be with other people and socialize. And where's that located? And that's at the Salem um, United Brethren Church on Letterkenny Road. Okay, great. So in addition to that, we have Human Service Training Days. They happen twice a year. And, and this month we have on April 17th, Al Condalusi being our featured speaker and he's going to talk about social capital and what that means and how we can leverage that in our communities and so we're very excited to have him that event is still open for um, registration and you can do that Um, someone could contact me and i could give them the link or you could look on our website and find that and what's your website url uh, we're at franklintogether.org. Okay, great. And so, talk a little about social capital. That's an interesting idea. Let's let's get into that a little bit. Yeah, so social capital, we want to make sure that we are aware of everything that's in the community that could be helpful to other people, and mm-hmm. then we leverage that by working together. Mm-hmm. Because you don't want to be doing something with your pot of money and your resources, and I'm over here doing mm-hmm. the same thing, or something that you could benefit Right, streamline and let's get it together, you know, and be Mm -hmm. um, more successful together than trying to stand in silos and do things separately. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, continue. And then we have community film night. Uh, We have a group that puts on a community film every quarter, and we're happy that in April they choose to make that focused on reentry. So we have a great film this year, documentary called Healing Justice. We'll, we'll be playing that twice. We'll be playing it on April 11th in Waynesboro. So okay. if you live uh, down that way, you can come to the LCBC Church on Midville Road for a showing of that. Okay. And if you live up in Chambersburg or want to see it twice, like I'll do, um, you can come again on April 25th, and that's at the Capitol Theater at the Wood Center on the second floor. If you're not able to make it to those, is that available online? Is there somewhere we can watch what it? What we'll probably do is make that available through the libraries okay. uh, or through uh, borrowing it from Franklin Together because we do own the movie. So we actually have a copy of it that you could borrow. Okay, and this is going to be the stories of people, you know, kind of reentering society. And and the issues of people being involved in the criminal justice system because they're not able to cope with their life because of their past traumas. Mm. And we see that people's stories involve traumatic childhoods. We know that from when we look at the ACE studies of how people are affected by things in their childhood and not always what you think. Um, Resilience is a topic that is coming more and more to light and we want to make sure that in the criminal justice system we're cognizant of that and doing what we can to help people to do better. Yeah, how do you drill down to those issues with people? Because, you know, sometimes those can be the real core things that need to be addressed, but how would you kind of work your way to that? Well, part of what we do in trauma therapy is just making people aware of what trauma looks like. Not everyone is insightful enough to say, hey, you know what, maybe that is trauma for me. Maybe that is what's going on with me. Mm -hmm. And so bringing that to light for people is the first step. Mm -hmm. And then we can work on what that means to them and what they've done to cope with that. And a lot of the things that we see with depression and anxiety and drug use really 
you know, come down to the core of, you know, what hurts are you trying yeah. to avoid in your life? Trying to push what? something down. Absolutely. Sure. And so, the film is called Healing Justice. That Healing sounds interesting. Healing Justice. It's a great film. It's very interesting. Looks at a lot of different ideas. And what I like about it most is it gives suggestions on what we can do as a community to make mm-hmm. things better. That's great. And so we're very excited about that. Very excited to be showing that two times during the month. We're also excited because we have a judicial uh, candidate panel because we do have an open spot on our circuit court and that election's coming up in May. So we have two candidates who are vying for that seat, Mary Beth Shank and Ian Brink, and they have both agreed to be on a panel that we'll have at Bard Hall at um, the community center here in Chambersburg mm-hmm. on that is Thursday, April the 18th. And that's going to start at 630. We have a list of questions that we have ready for them. Oh, boy. What are yeah. some of the questions? Because I was just going to ask, what do we want out of a candidate in terms of, you know, advocating for what you're doing here? Absolutely. So we're going to ask them questions on their philosophy mm-hmm. of what the criminal justice should look like, what they see as injustices in the system. We really want them to give the audience a feel for how they're going to serve in that Mm -hmm. position. Mm -hmm. So I think that should be a very exciting night. And I hope that, you know, people will want to be informed and not just come out to vote or not vote because they aren't aware of issues. So we we really want to inform the public that night. Sure. And as a voter, that's a chance to uh, get some answers out of them. Absolutely. And on top of that, we're having voter registration that night. Oh, nice. So that while you cannot vote, uh, register that night for the May election, it would be too late for that. Right. But you can register so that you can vote at another election time in the fall. And we want people to be aware that in Pennsylvania, you can vote with a criminal record, um, depending on if you meet the criteria for that. And we'll have people there who are experts in that and, and can inform people whether they are eligible to become a voter if they're not already. What are what are the restrictions on a criminal record for voting? Well, it has to do with your record and felonies. Sometimes in some states you can't ever vote right. if you have a felony, but in Pennsylvania that's not the case. Okay. So we'll be bringing that out um, for people so that they can question the experts. I'm not one of them. Yeah, it, but- <laughs> that's tricky stuff. But I, I I, mean, I personally believe if you served your time, once you're out, you right. should be allowed to vote. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the great things about the United States, right? Is we have we have a constitutionally to- protected right to vote in the 14th Absolutely. and 15th Amendment. And I think that goes back when you say that if you've served your time and you know that when I've talked to you before, and I think I say this just about every meeting that we have, But one of our favorite quotes is the one by Brian Stevenson, that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And if we believe that, we have to believe that people can redeem themselves and Mm -hmm. be forgiven Mm -hmm. and move on from that. And in the criminal justice system, that's really what we want. We want to see that people can move on and that they're just not stigmatized and stuck Mm -hmm. in that, you know, what I call revolving shame of what they've done so that they never can get out because you know we want people to get help and we want people to be better right. it's better for all of us oh 100 right? as, as a community lower those recidivism rates absolutely as a nation and if i give you some rates if you don't mind if i throw some Please statistics do. in there when we look at who's in our prisons um it's estimated that each year over two million women are placed in jails and 80% of those women are mothers. So think about that. That's that's huge. Like all of those children are affected along. Yeah, that's a know, generation like, being set back out of the gate. Absolutely. So at one in every 28 children has one or other or both parents incarcerated. So when you think about classroom size, can you imagine there's teachers who with 28 students the odds are at least one of those is Mm -hmm. sitting in class trying to cope with learning new math while dealing with the issues of having an absent parent and and the worries of that so that alone is one of those trauma issues Mm -hmm. that adds up on that ace score and this was an interesting statistic i found the other day the overall likelihood of getting expelled from school is four percent but if you have a father who's incarcerated, your odds go up to 23%. That's pretty huge. Yeah, that's a significant leap. 
no that's, question. That's huge. So um, looking at graduating from college, the overall uh, college graduation rate um, is 40%, which is kind of scary right there, yeah. all those student loans. But if you have a mother who's incarcerated, your chance of graduating from college drops to 2%. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That really says a lot. And we have all these women in jails, in prisons, and their children's are being their children are being affected. So I think that's a huge issue that we all need to pay attention to. Yes, because it affects all of us, uh, directly and indirectly. Absolutely. And the criminal justice system isn't cheap. No. It's expensive to mm -hmm. put someone in jail. And as a taxpayer, I know I want my tax dollars to go to something positive. You know, that's an interesting point. And I'm going to bring up something a little outside of this. But this recent controversial case with this individual, uh, Jesse Smollett, where the system kind of said, we're done with you. You know, we're going to move on down the road. And people seem so upset. But I took your position. That's taxpayer money. They have bigger problems. Right. You know, and I think if everybody kind of looked at the system as like, let's let's think about this rationally. Where is this individual going to do serve society best? You know, behind bars or let's get them back into society. Let's get them to become a taxpayer again. Right. And in other countries, they don't jail people forever. Right. We just tend to be a country that has used punishment and sort of feels vindicated by it's that. The, it's our Puritan heritage. I think so. Uh, we, I think we, so. We, are strong believers in punishment. And if you don't realize what I'm talking about with the amount of money that it costs, in Franklin County, just 2.3% of our county population, we're estimated at about 154,000 people, just 2.3% of that is involved in the criminal justice system. And yet they're using up 78% of our county tax dollars that come from real estate. That's huge. So that leaves 22% for other services school like district. children and youth or aging. School yeah. tax is a different oh, tax. Oh, separate. Okay, All sorry. right, but let me talk about that since you brought it up. Okay. So in Pennsylvania, it cost $42,000 to keep someone in prison. And we're spending about $8,000 to have a student in the public school system for a year. So think about if we switch that around. What if we didn't incarcerate so many people, didn't keep them in for so long, and we could spend more money on education? Think about what the world would be like if we were able to do that. If we could spend $42,000 on a public school student per year, it would just change everything. Change it, classroom size, change what's available, change the opportunities. Mm -hmm. It's mind-boggling to me. Is that even doable? Because just sitting I here think, thinking about that, I mean, it sounds like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. I think that um, we certainly have to be willing to push the rock. And if we all get together, it might not be one of us. But if a whole bunch of us push, push on the rock. I think those numbers being made more public could have a bigger impact. You know, people know your child $8,000 a year, this incarcerated individual 42, and then they get out and there's nothing for the incarcerated individual. And then recidivism and all this negative loop right. in, in terms of the children and the mothers. So, right. So why don't we we change it? I mean, I have to think that in the United States, we've we've been a nation of people that were willing to fight the fight and do the hard thing and mm -hmm. put our opinions out there. And that's one of the great things about it. So why can't we push back and say we want this to change and this is what we want it to look like? So um, that'd be so a great question for the judges. It would be, wouldn't it? Yes. What are you going to do about this? Because this is not the way that the society should be run. Exactly. And they're so. at the forefront of sentencing. Does Pennsylvania have mandatory minimums for certain crimes, drug well, crimes, violent crimes? We do for uh, specifically for DUIs, and I won't pretend to be an expert on that either. Mm -hmm. But just to say that, yes, there are sentencing guidelines and mandatory minimums for certain things. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there are things that judges aren't deciding just on their own. But again, we can advocate on a higher level to say, is this really what we want for our state? Do we really want minimums at this level? Or should we tell our lawmakers that we want this to change? And mm -hmm. that's a grassroots effort and it's happened. I mean, the reason they're like that now is mainly because of the push from Mothers Against Drunk, Dr Drunk Drivers back in the day. We didn't have all of that back in the 70s. 
Yeah, it's one of these laws of unintended consequences things where it sounds like a good idea at the time, and then you find out, well, now the judge's hands are tied, Mm -hmm. and they have zero flexibility in sentencing. Right. Which is not always a great thing. Not always. So let's go through some more of the events, and then we're going to introduce our guest. So our last event for the month is going to be a candlelight vigil. Um, We're going to do that in support of Second Chances, and that's going to happen on Main Street in Waynesboro at what we call our parklet uh, (laughs) in downtown. The little park that's in between two buildings. It's nice. It's nice. Yeah, it's a great place for a vigil. And um, we're going to be there at 7 o'clock on April 30th. We hope to have a group of people there who uh, come out to listen to some stories and, and again, to be educated on what people go through and how people can change if we give them the opportunities. And I think that's why Josh is here today, to talk about what someone can do if given the chance. So let's go ahead and if you could introduce our guest. So Josh Wargo is with me today. He is a member of our executive committee at Franklin Together, and he represents returning citizens, and he has an interesting story and one that I would hope that many people could replicate by being a positive example. Okay. Thanks for coming, Josh. Thank you so much for uh, the opportunity. And uh, just to share a little bit about my background, uh, I'm not from Franklin County, so I I come in with uh, fresh eyes and fresh perspective. I'm from Luzerne County, which is about three hours north, uh, born and raised in Wilkes-Barre, which is smack dab in the middle of Philadelphia, uh, between Philadelphia and New York City. Uh, So I got exposed to a lot of things at a young age that I probably shouldn't have, um, really starting with my home life. Uh, I had the opportunity to visit mom and dad in jail. Um, That was probably some of my earliest childhood memories. I remember probably being about three or four, seeing dad behind glass talking through those phones and didn't really know what that was, uh, visiting mom in jail, uh, visiting dad in rehab. So that was, it's sad what becomes normal. Yeah. Um, and I started using drugs when I was seven years old. That was the first time. When you time were seven? I, when I was seven. Who was your primary caretaker? Um, my mother and father. Um, Even when they were incarcerated? Um, well, usually one would be in jail and one oh, wouldn't be. Okay. Um, and I mean, times have changed a lot. You know, I, I don't think that would happen now. Uh, my grandmother was a big part of my life mm-hmm. um, and a big part of my faith development, too, that came later. Um, but I, I got exposed to drugs at seven. Um, it really hit a bottom uh, really fast. Now, how does a seven-year-old get a hold of drugs? Uh, I just think, you know, hanging out with the wrong crowd, um, you know, being in an urban area, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you, you see things that maybe you don't see in, say, a more rural community. Sure. Um, like, for example, when I was 13, 14, I was buying drugs from gang members, you know, and, and that was what was normal to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up dropping out of high school. Uh, it's funny, the only grade I completed in high school was ninth grade. And uh, as soon as I was of dropout age, I was ready to. I believe you could drop out at age 16 in uh, Pennsylvania with okay. parent consent. At 17, you could sign out yourself. Um, so by the time I was 18, I was arrested for the first time. I had a DUI, drug-related DUI. And uh, got out of jail and used immediately. Was arrested again the next year uh, at age 19 for uh, a theft charge, a theft by unlawful taking charge, uh, hanging out with the wrong type of people, and we uh, tried stealing a four-wheeler. So I was arrested at age 19, and uh, I went to jail. And to be honest, I was so grateful. Like I was, my life was so bad at that point Mm -hmm. that going to jail was an improvement. If that says where I was uh, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. Um, And I think that was really the first time when I I had that, you know, sometimes we call it a moment of clarity, uh, a spiritual awakening when I said, you know what, something needs to change. And the thing about addicts is we don't like change. Uh, I don't know many people who like change, but uh, it seems like a lot of people knew I had a problem and, and people wanted to help. But for a long time, I I don't want help. Right. You know, when people tried to help me, when I would push them away. Uh, and that's pretty common among addicts. When Can you, could I interrupt just for a sec, just to give us a snapshot of someone who is a drug addict. <clears throat> They're expensive. Mm-hmm. Drugs are expensive. So how do you kind of keep it going? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. And my wife, who's not an addict, asked me that. Um, it came down to spending everything I had, you know, whether it was... Uh, money that I had saved, uh, money from, you know, 
uh, odd jobs, cutting grass. So you did work. Yeah. Okay. For for a little while, then I ended up selling everything I owned. Whether you know, as as a teenager, whether it be video games or CDs, DVDs, mm-hmm. uh, and then that's when uh, once all my stuff was gone, I had to look at other people's stuff. Sure. Um, and that's why I have a theft charge on my record: mm-hmm. um, stealing from friends, stealing from family members, stealing from dealers. You know, doing things that probably could have gotten me killed, but just to keep feeding feeding your addiction and yeah. and I never really understood like why why do people commit robberies and burglaries until you are there right you know and then realizing oh that's why you see all this stuff on the news it's so, not necessarily that they want to do it because they want to it's, it's almost that you so the, have the, to. the the craving overrides all rational thought mm-hmm. even though you can rationally look at the world and say well this is dangerous what I'm about to do the craving says I don't care mm-hmm. keep going yeah I mean I I I ended friendships over stealing $20 off people. You know, I, I stole from family members. I stole from friends. Uh, you know, at the time, dropping out of high school sounded like a great idea uh, because I'm like, hey, you know, uh, I could spend the mo- majority of my day using now. I don't need to put up with this. Yeah. Um, you know, that's obviously not rational thinking. Right. Uh, so anyway, I ended up getting locked up and... Um, I, I was in jail for one week, so I don't want to act like I am a hardened criminal. I uh, did a ton of time. Uh, but as I said, it was something that I grew up with. My, my father was somebody who um, the majority of my life was in and out of, of jail, and his drug of choice was actually alcohol. So he had, you know, we were talking about DUIs earlier. He had multiple, multiple DUIs, mm-hmm. um, and DUI laws have changed since then. Um, so uh, I did one week in jail, and then I was actually bailed out by uh, a program from Catholic Charities. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what this was but they said hey we'll bail you out we'll take you under our wing and i show me where to sign so uh, i ended up taking a plea bargain i got an m1 on my record which is the highest grade misdemeanor and um you know that affected me when i got out of jail i could not find even entry-level employment especially being a dropout um having a theft on your record you know you're not going to (laughs) be i remember gas stations turned me away uh, fast food restaurants so I was really thinking, what am I going to do? You know, I, I can't get, get a job anywhere. Um, when me and my wife got married in 2014, housing was an issue for mm-hmm. us because we uh, she had lived in an apartment. They almost did not let me move in with her. Um, and even with an M1 on my record, I cannot own a firearm. A lot of people mm-hmm. think it's felonies and drug-related offenses, but in Pennsylvania, it's an M2 or higher where you okay. cannot own a firearm. Um, so I had to really work my way up. Um, in talking about re-entry, I had absolutely nothing, no education, no work history, and it's really easy to go back to that when... Well, all the doors were being shut in your face, absolutely. left and right. Talk about your dealing with your addiction once you're out of jail again. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did you address that? So um, once I went to Luzerne County Correctional Facility, um, I was introduced to two things that uh, I would credit with uh, my helping me with my addiction. Uh, I heard about Jesus. Um, I kind of grew up with the organized religion thing and wasn't a fan of organized religion. Um, but once I heard about Jesus and mm-hmm. his forgiveness, it, 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 he didn't come to promote an organized religion. Um, and also 12-step meetings, which I'm still actively involved mm-hmm. with 12-step meetings. Uh, so I got out, uh, started going to 12-step meetings, so you were doing the work mm-hmm. that has to be done. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, continue your story. I was 19 years old. I was actually, uh, I was 19 when I walked into my first 12-step meeting, and I was the youngest one there. I remember the first person I met was a gentleman in his 50s who was using drugs for 40, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's stuff like that. that oh, well, maybe I don't belong here. Uh, maybe I'm not done yet, you know, but I, I stayed. Um, I was willing to take suggestions. And, and it was really like I credit the 12-step meetings for people teaching me how to be a man hmm. because I, you know, my father was in and out of jail. Kim talked about the statistics of a fatherless home, right. a motherless home. Um, it was the people there that taught me how to get a job. They taught me how to, uh, when your word means something, hey, if I say I'm going to be here at 5 o'clock, be here at five o'clock. Don't just show up whenever you want or not show up at all. Um, and then it was also there that gave me the opportunity uh, to go back to college. Uh, I ended up getting my GED and I lived in a homeless shelter. I lived there for 18 months. And when I started college, um, I was homeless. 
I was on parole, and I was on welfare. <laughs> so I really had the deck stacked against me. You and sure I, did. I did not have a car, so I was taking a bus. I uh, grew up in an area where they had public transportation, which was very helpful. But I remember getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to catch a bus um, and, and getting there, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, Anyway, once I ended up getting my associate degree at the community college, I got hired at the homeless shelter. And I've been working, uh, kind of giving back to, um, you know, people who might have been forgotten by society, the lost causes of society, yeah. some may think. In 2010, I started working uh, at a homeless shelter in Wilkes-Barre, run by Volunteers of America. And uh, I was on the other side of the desk. And, and people really, I think, will listen to you more when you say, hey, I've been there. That's one of the most powerful things. You have the credibility of experience. Yeah, I mean, to have that empathy, to not just say, hey, I could put myself in your situation. I've been there. No, you can't. You know, and it's it's very powerful. I've been doing prison ministry uh, since 2010 as well. And you know what? They could see through fake. (laughs) When somebody goes in there and just talks about what they read in a book or what they think is right, when I say, hey, I sat in these same seats, um, you know, they will listen to that. And uh, so anyway, I was, I was doing social work. I, I have a bachelor's degree in social work. I was a first-generation college graduate, uh, which was a tremendous honor in and of itself. And then, like we were talking before the podcast, I went to seminary in Washington, D.C. I went to Wesley Theological Seminary. And since 2014, I've been serving as a United Methodist pastor. And um, to, just to share a little victory, um, my clean date is June 1st, 2007. That's the time I got clean, I stopped using drugs and alcohol. June 1st of 2019 is when I will be ordained in the United Methodist Church. So 12 years to the day. um, It's pretty cool to to have that kind of moment of triumph. Uh, But some of the, you know, I've been through some things in recovery. Um, For example, when I had five years clean, my dad died from his addiction. Uh, from his addiction to alcohol. And, And I remember, you know, being there when he had passed away. And you know, reality shows me where addiction can lead you, you know, helping the undertaker zip dad up in a body bag, you know, watching that firsthand and realizing that that could have been me. Um, Thankfully, my mother uh, is clean now. Uh, I was just going to ask, did that kind of snap her too? Yeah, she she found recovery through the church. Uh, Me and my mother have a great relationship today. She's been clean and sober for some time now. Uh, And and we have a great relationship. That's wonderful. It's amazing. And, um, you know, and I really like to give back to the community. That's why I, I love being involved with, with what Kim does with mm-hmm. the county. I've lived in several counties in Pennsylvania, and really, to me, Franklin County goes above and beyond which what they want to do um, for addicts. Mm-hmm. Because when I got clean in 2007, there was a, um, a stigma. You know, addicts were, you know, I, I've been called many names. Um, people just really don't understand it. And I think now people see it more as a disease. Uh, people see it more as addicts are very sick people, and, and they need help. Um, I was grateful that I was able to. I never went to a, a rehab, but I did do outpatient, so I have received treatment uh, for my addiction. And, uh, you know, to be able to give back, I still go to meetings. Uh, I still help people. Uh, I still share my story, like, you know, doing now, to say that yeah. it is possible. Um, where I'm from in Luzerne County, last year, 2018, we lost 169 people because of overdoses. Right. This affects every community everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's not isolated. What is, when you look back, what was the single biggest hurdle outside of just getting clean to coming back into society? That's a great question. And I would say embarrassment. Because, you know, like when you're when you're walking into the welfare office and you see somebody you went to high school with working behind the desk, mm, yeah, um, ouch. It's, a, it's a big slice of humble pie. Um, you <laughs> know, when... Part. You know, you're standing there waiting for the bus and pouring down rain, um, and you see people driving around in nice cars. You know, and you, you get angry almost too. It's like, man, why did, why is this happening to me? Um, I remember when I I worked, I eventually got hired at a restaurant, which was really nice. They gave me a chance, and I didn't have a car, so they dropped me off at the homeless shelter, and it was almost embarrassing. Like, oh, where do you live? Oh, I live at the homeless shelter down the street. You know. Yeah. Um, so I would say that was, I had to get past that embarrassment and say, you know what, I have to humble myself. Yeah. I have to realize that if I keep doing what I'm doing, this is only temporary. Um, you know, I'm, I'm no longer uh, on welfare anymore. I'm no longer living in a shelter. Um, I have a career now. I have a master's degree. 
Uh, I never even thought that was possible. As I said earlier, I only completed ninth grade. Right. Um, so, and, and to have a master's degree, like education helps. And I didn't think it was possible. Like I really thought, you know, when I got out of jail for the first time, when I couldn't even get a job anywhere. And I have been turned away from several jobs. I, I've got hired and they told me a couple days, oh, you got to leave now. Um, so I, I saw what that was like. And, and it, it is a challenge, especially what I see around here. And, and as I said, coming from an outsider's perspective, seeing a lack of transportation. Um, that is a problem here. This in is somewhat of a, sure. a rural community. Sure. There's certainly, um, you know, but if people are getting out of jail, it's hard to get to meetings. It's hard to get to church. It's hard to get to work, and that's why I think it's so easy for people to go back. Yeah, because that's all they know. Right, they're set up to fail a little bit. Mm-hmm. What would you say to an employer uh, regarding these these applications where they do have to check that box? Mm-hmm. It's a tough call for an employer. Mm-hmm. It is. So what I did is, and this was a suggestion. I don't know if it works, but it worked for me. Is I would put, I checked yes. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? Mm-hmm. And I said would prefer to explain in person. I didn't want to write down the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted that face-to-face opportunity where I could say, hey, yes, that happened. Um, I paid my debt to society. Yeah. I, I, I did my time. I paid all my fines off. Um, I'd like an opportunity. And, yeah. and that's really what it was, is I, need, I needed somebody to give me an opportunity. Mm-hmm. It was that restaurant that gave me an opportunity, and I stayed there for about 18 months. And that was, I left on good terms, gave a two-week notice when I left, and, and uh, I was very grateful that they trusted me when a lot of other employers did not. Yeah, there's an inherent fear. Mm-hmm. You know, well, if they'll do that, you know, and I employ them, who knows what they'll do. Do you think that's the biggest hurdle that a lot of people reentering society, especially addicts, face? Or not just addicts, but having to check that box. Employment, I mean, it's the thing that gives you stability or instability. Mm-hmm. Is that the single biggest hurdle? I, I think it, it can be. Um, but from my perspective, I think addicts are some of the most reliable people. Like somebody who's, you know, because some of the things yeah, we learn. very counterintuitive what you just said. Yeah. Um, but some of, especially someone who's a recovering addict, you know, not somebody who's actively using. But, you know, some of the principles that we learn in, in the 12-step meetings um, are really about becoming a productive member of society. And, and the 12 steps... Um, is kind of a transformation. It takes you from step one to step 12, and and it transforms you into a productive member of society. And, and I see similarities between, you know, what, what Jesus' message does mm-hmm. is, is a transformation. Because like we were talking earlier, my only problem wasn't just I needed to stop using. I had trauma issues. Right. I had self-esteem issues. Um, I had some deep stuff that I had to really dig through. Like stop using was the, the first step. Right. And then I had to dig and say, well, why... Am I constantly using drugs? Why did I do this? And I had to find that out. Mm-hmm. So when you talk to people, do you feel like you have to dig into that past life or the kind of those root causes? I think so. And, and I think, you know, I think addiction stems far beyond just drugs. I mean, there, yeah. there are some people who just bury themselves in their work. Right. They bury themselves in cell phones now. I mean, that's obviously a major well, that's addiction. Everybody. Yeah, <laughs> right here. Um, but I think, you know, some people, or, or whether it's money, it's shopping, it, it's whatever, you're, you're burying something. Um, I know some people who are burying things that they, they never even used drugs in their life, but they, uh, they suppressed it with anger. They suppressed it with their ego. They suppressed it with uh, promiscuity, you know, mm-hmm. uh, credit cards. Anything can become addicting. Anything that's really pleasurable can become addicting. Well, once the brain learns those cycles of reward, Mm -hmm. it wants them to keep going, whether it's drugs or spending money Mm -hmm. in either case. Well, I'm glad to hear your high praise for Franklin County and um, the the programs here. Um, That's nice to hear. The people that you're meeting, is there kind of a demographic you're seeing more of or less of? Um, I think there is a lot of uh, of younger people. and I, and I don't know what it is. As I said, I'm not from around here. I, I think with us being so close to Baltimore and D.C. could be one of the reasons why we're seeing drugs come in. And I live in Waynesboro, and a lot of people didn't know how to handle this epidemic. Because you think about it, people... Oh, it's just a quiet little country yeah, town Yeah, I mean, people are used time. to people drinking beer in the woods, and they're not used to people dying of overdoses. Yeah. Um, and for me, coming from a different area, it was stuff I was exposed to 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think to promote awareness and saying how could, you know, community leaders with what we do with Franklin together, uh, people like yourself here, like how can we promote 
there are solutions. There are a ton of solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize that until I got clean that there was so much help available. But, you know, number one, I didn't want help at one time. Number right. two, you're embarrassed to ask. But there is stuff available. And I think just having that awareness, having relationships uh, within the community, with churches, with community leaders, um, with, with people who just want to see people do better, I think is, is a start. Well, I'm really happy for your story. And I think the thing that is best about your story is how you're giving back. Mm-hmm. How you're not taking for granted what was given out to you mm-hmm. at an early age. How old are you now, if you don't mind? I am 31. 31, okay. So I got clean when I was 19, and uh, Lord willing, June 1st will be uh, 12 years clean, and, and Lord willing, my ordination day. So. Well, congratulations. Thank you. When you bring religion into the mix, does that kind of sometimes push people one way or another? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, for example, I, I know what it's like to... Um, I did not. I was not raised in a Christian family, yeah. obviously, um, so I, I get to see it from a different perspective. And uh, I was someone who clearly uh, was, I would say, lost from addiction and crime and, and all that lifestyle. And, and when I preach, I have a very different um, method. I'm honest. Um, a lot of churches that I was in wasn't a whole lot of honesty going on, and I, I'm vulnerable. And I share, hey, I'm I make mistakes. I'm broken, yeah. um, and I, I try not to to talk about religion because I, I think religion can be oppressive. Um, I, I think what Jesus offered was something different than, than religion. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to promote. And I think being authentic, being real is what will attract people yeah. to that. And like, obviously I, this is how I dress, you, you know, jeans and a t-shirt. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't wear a, a robe. I don't, you know, sometimes I'll wear a clerical collar, but I think I could be more down to earth. Um, because when I say I'm a pastor, oh, that's when people <laughs> need to need to put on their best, uh, you know, right. uh, pretend face. Right. You know? But I feel like they can't use salty language in front of you. Yeah, and I mean, for me to be able to say, hey, you know, I'm a Christian, and I've been in jail, I've been on the streets, uh, I've committed crimes, and and I'm not living that way anymore by God's grace. Um, and then people will open up and say, hey, you know what, I have a past uh, that I've done some things, and and you know, they will share it with me. What's what's a a reform you would like to see in terms of the legal system because as we're talking about you know we're incarcerating people at these just stupendous rates mm-hmm. and we're not you know it's wasted money from your perspective inside what's a reform you would want to see enacted I'm, I'm glad you said that because um, I'm working on it right now I'm actually going through the process of a governor's pardon um, it, it's a three-year process though uh, I filled out all the paperwork I'm about halfway through it uh, I got a letter that they will be coming to my house to interview me. Whoa. Um, my my vision is to have my theft charge erased from my record. The reason being is I have uh, a young daughter. I have a one-year-old daughter. and Congratulations. I have, I have a child on the way in October. Um, I don't want my children affected by my past to say, hey, you can't volunteer as a, a soccer coach, or hey, you can't be a part of the PTO. Uh, right. Um, when when I've, I've changed, I, I'm a productive member of society today, and that's why I, I would like to see that three-year process shortened um, for a pardon, you know? And why are we so in love with the stigmatization? <laughs> it seems like we really love it. Like, this is, this is it for the rest of your life. Yeah. Even though you did these things at 19 when the male brain <laughs> is really operating a 13-year-old yeah. level. <laughs> you know, the embarrassment of having to say to your daughter, I mm-hmm. can't coach soccer. I mean, yeah. come on. Mm-hmm. You know? And I mean, I almost had to say that to my wife when we, we got married. And, uh, oh, well, by the way, we might have to go find another place to live because I can't live here. Yeah. Um, that was embarrassing. Thankfully, we ended up getting that straightened out. And, and I was able to, to live at that particular apartment. Um, but my wife also was affected by it because I had unpaid fines. I mean, it took me, I think it took me eight years to pay off all my fines. Um, you know, because you think when you're working entry-level jobs, when you're living in a homeless shelter, you don't have a ton of money yeah. to throw on your fines. And, and fines are expensive. I know some people, to be honest with you, who will never pay their fines off. The amount is just astronomical. How do we address that? <laughs> I mean, that, well, that seems almost like indentured servitude. Mm-hmm. Like, it, we're going to slap exactly. so many fines on top of you, you will mm-hmm. never get out from under this. Right. It's a lot. I think that's one of the amazing things about when you get a DUI, what people don't realize. You can get a DUI and not even engage an attorney and still spend $10,000 in fines and costs from a DUI. Mm-hmm. And so that's another issue to address. But as Josh brought up about uh, expungement, 
We are working with the Bar Association here in Franklin County because we would like to have clinics to explain to people how they could go about getting their record expunged. Mm -hmm. It's Right now, it's a terrible process. It takes a long time, and it's a, more than most people can manage right. on their own. So, again, through a coalition, we can advocate for things better than we can one-on-one, -on -one, but we want to get that message out there as well. Mm -hmm. And also legal aid clinics. So we're, we're looking forward this year, and that's one of the goals that we have, is to start having those clinics to help people clear their records for things like that. You know, I, don't, I think that's a terrible thing to think that something someone's done 10, 12, 20 years ago. And if they've been on the straight and narrow exactly. ever since that we would hold that against them to that point that they can't even be part of their children's life, especially knowing how important parenting is mm -hmm. and being being there for children. So we kind of do it a little bit backwards. I also think when I listen to Josh's story, it reminds me so much of every story I hear from people, this revolving door through poverty. I don't think that we can ignore the fact of what that does to families when the breadwinner leaves and and someone doesn't have the ability to keep up their payments and their apartments and they they just lose so much i've had so many people who because of drug use and they end up back in jail they lose everything they have and they come out with nothing at all mm -hmm. and, one, and the, just a quick mm -hmm. interruption the system offers nothing like jail, you're you're done with jail. Mm -hmm. Let's say you're not going to a halfway house or anything. You're just are you just out on your own? You're just out, and when you have to get out on your minimum, you have to have a home plan. And we do at uh, the jail try to help people find home plans. They still have to have a way to afford it, unless you get into a program like I have that's grant funded. But otherwise, at your maximum, they just unlock the door and let you out, and you're out in the parking lot trying to figure out where you're going to go because your sentence is done, but there's no... So the system reason. is really top-heavy on punishment and almost nothing over here on the side of rehabilitation. Let's get, let's get you back into society. Right. So we're trying to do better with programming and services for people with mental health issues for people with substance use but we have a long way to go it's still top heavy another one of the quotes by um brian stevenson is the opposite of um poverty isn't wealth it's justice and i think there's a lot of truth in that yeah that for sure. you you know we see it on the news all the time someone who's rich is arrested for a crime and they pay their way out and charges are dropped but you know someone who doesn't have the money to pay that kind of fee they go in they go in and we know that people with mental health issues uh, there are many many reports and studies that show that if you have a mental health issue and you go to jail you will stay longer you will have more misconducts while in jail yeah. which only makes sense because you're not able to you know stand up sit down do what you're supposed to do right and that you revolve back in again because you're not stable. And, and the jails aren't designed to treat mental health They never issues. were, but they, they have had to pick up that slack. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see us get back to a system where we don't use our jails for rehabs and we don't use our jails for mental work. health wards. And well, Josh, congratulations. Thank you. On all your success and much success going forward. Thank you so much for coming on here today and sharing your story. Kim, if you want to give out your website one more time, if people want to participate in some of these events. So yes, we're franklintogether.org, and you can find us on Facebook. We would love for you to like our Facebook page and sign up to get our announcements. We have a great coordinator, Elena Engels, who works for SCAP, and she is terrific at sending out information and keeping everyone up to date so you'll get lots of emails from her and information if you want to learn more and please come to our next meeting our next full coalition meeting is may the 2nd that's a thursday we meet from 1 to 3 and we meet at the admin annex of 218 north 2nd street everyone's welcome to attend we usually have a huge crowd about 70 people oh, so come and you can be 71. all right thank you both so much